Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Today, uh, we are going to wrap up our three to four part series called Stay the Course with part 10. This will be it. We'll finish today. Uh, which has been a look at the book of Hebrews. Uh, not again, even though it seems like it, this is, we're not breaking down every single verse and every single doctrine. We are following this thread of staying the course. This is a letter written by who? That's right, by Paul. Oh, we don't know. Uh, but according to Pastor Scott, it's Paul and uh, <laughs> uh, whoever it is that God used to write this letter is addressing Jewish converts to Christianity who are now tempted to leave Christianity because of persecution, because they're not seeing Christianity work out the way they thought it was going to work out. And the author here, God through the author, is telling him, don't do it. You can't go back under the law. You'll, you'll lose. It might look more comfortable. It, li- it might look more respectable. But the law is over. The law, G- Jesus completed the law, and you're not just turning your back on a set of doctrines. You are turning your back on Jesus Christ. Don't take yourself back under that. Well, we did a, a little more thorough review of this book last week, so if you missed last week, I encourage you to get that message online and listen to it because I don't have time to do another review today. Uh, other than to point out that last week we talked about Jesus being the same yesterday, today, and forever. And uh, everything that these Jewish converts to Christianity held dear about the Old Testament law is demonstrated as being inferior to Jesus Christ. He's superior to Abraham. He's superior to Melchizedek. He's superior to Moses. He is greater even than the priesthood, greater than the law itself. And this is Jesus, this person of Jesus. Uh, This is who is continually pointed to throughout this letter. Not to, hey, let me argue your doctrine with my doctrine, but hey, before you do that, remember, this is Jesus you're turning away from. Don't do it. So we'll pick this up here uh, right after where we left off last week in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. And we read this. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For there, sorry, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Now, we are going to come back to verse 10 a little bit later and tie it in with communion, but I want to start here where it talks about the bodies of the animals being burned outside the camp. This is a reference specifically to the Day of Atonement and the sacrifice that was made on the Day of Atonement when the blood of the innocent animal was brought into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. You know, there were various sacrifices that were made. I'm sure that you, uh, like I, 
uh, like I am, you are often drawn back to that riveting reading in Leviticus where it describes all the different sacrifices and gifts and burnt offerings. Don't you just love all that detail it talks about? Cut the fatty portion here and take these particular organs out and burn these, eat these, whatever. Uh, but many of these sacrifices, once, they were, once the blood was brought and once certain parts were burned and, uh, and offered to God, the priest then could eat what was left. And sometimes the person who brought the offering could join the priest in consuming some of this sacrifice. But not on the Day of Atonement. This was the big offering. And what they did, I'm sure most of you remember this, they would actually bring... There was a bull and two goats involved, but for the, we're focusing on these two goats. There was God's goat and there was man's goat. There was the holy goat and there was the sin goat. And these, these two animals were brought, and by lot, one was designated the goat of God. And one, and this was the innocent goat, and one goat represented the sinful people. In fact, the priest would lay his hands on this goat and symbolically uh, place on this goat all of the sin of the people. And then it came time for the sacrifice. Guess, guess which goat got killed? The God goat. What happened to the, to the guilty goat, the sin goat, the people goat? It was set free, just released into the wilderness, while the innocent goat, the holy goat, the goat of God, was slain. And then the blood of this goat then was taken into the holy place, and then into the holy of holies. This was the one time a year that only, uh, there only, only one person ever went into the holy, holy of holies, and that was the high priest, and he only did it on this day. And he would take the blood of, this, of, of the goat of God and sprinkle it on the top, over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. This was the chest, this was the Ark that they carried with them everywhere they went. It was placed in the tabernacle, uh, in the Holy of Holies, and then later on in the temple. But then this was a huge, uh, super important ritual because this was the day that the sins of the people were atoned for. And what would happen, remember, we read this in Hebrews. We read it earlier. What's inside this chest? What's inside, inside this ark? There is uh, the, the, ta- the stone tablets, the broken ones, uh, that, that God had given to Moses, had written the law on, uh, and they're in there broken as uh, to symbolize and remind the people that they had broken God's law. Also in there is Aaron's rod that budded. Uh, that's in there to remind the people that they had rejected God's authority. And there was the pot of manna, this jar of manna uh, that was also in there to remind the people that they had rejected God's provision. They had complained about everything that God had tried to bless them with. And so taken together, these items represented the sin of the people inside this ark. And so when God looks down at the ark, instead of seeing evidence of the sin of the people, what does he see? He sees the shed blood of the innocent sacrifice. And, realize, and, and, so for, and, and, and he receives that. It's not like God is fooled. He's the one who set this up. Instead of seeing your sin, I see the blood. This is a powerful sacrifice and, but that day of atonement, the word atonement in the Old Testament context means covering. The people's sins were covered by this blood. How long were they covered for? One year. Then they had to do it again. And they had to do it every year, repeatedly. 
But then, once that blood was applied, they didn't do anything else with that animal. They did not eat it. They did not split it up. They carried that carcass outside the camp and burned it completely. They burned it completely. Uh, And what we're reading here is that Jesus, who is the mediator of this new and better covenant for us, didn't fulfill his ultimate duty in the temple or even in Jerusalem, the holy city. He was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. And that was his atoning work. And the atonement as we understand it today, the atoning work that that Christ accomplished was not merely a covering. We are actually cleansed by the blood of Christ. And that's why we don't have to do this year after year after year. We don't get back into the ritual offering and sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice was made for us. But his, again, his work, come back to that in just, just a second. It says he was made uh, to suffer outside the city. Now here's the temple that was made by human hands at the instruction of God and Jesus. Now he ministered and he did miracles, he taught, he preached, he did so many things. But face it, what he came for was to be crucified, buried, and rise from the dead. That was his mission. And when he finally completed that, he did it outside the city. He did not need the temple that was made by human hands. He fulfilled his ministry outside the city. Not just outside the temple, but outside the city. And he was being rejected by the religious authorities and still managed to please God. He was able to complete his work. And so what the writer here is saying is, let's, you and me, not be afraid of being similarly rejected. If the world rejects us, we're okay. We're in good company. They rejected Jesus, and that rejection uh, did not prevent Jesus from fulfilling his mission. It was his mission to die where he died and the way he died. After all, and this is the thing, we can get a little too wrapped up in this world. There's a lot of good stuff in this world. God made it good, right? And he, and he pretty much gave the world to us. Now the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But it also says he's given it into the hands of men. I and mean, we certainly read that in Genesis. He's given us rule and dominion over this world. There's a lot of good stuff. But this world system is broken. It's messed up. And that's because we're messed up and broken when we're sinners. And only Jesus can fix us. But we are kind of driven by the world's approval. I mean, you can break it down into some specifics, but mankind, sinful man, is generally driven by a lust or a drive for power or a lust or a drive for pleasure or at least comfort. These are the things we're seeking, and we feel like we have to have money or position, or approval in order to enjoy this power, in order to enjoy these pleasures. But we read very clearly in this passage that we have no continuing city in this world. Our eyes, our expectations, all of our focus needs to be on the city of God, the one to come. 
just like these Old Testament examples we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. He gives us all these great examples of men and women of faith and says the thing that ties them together is they were looking beyond their own lives. Not that they weren't blessed in some degree here on earth. Many of them were greatly blessed. But many of them suffered greatly. Uh, Many of them lost their lives. But their focus was undeterred. They kept their eyes on the future. What What God had reserved for them in the next world. And we're to be the same way. Now, uh, look at what comes next, where it says we continually offer the sacrifice of praise. Now, I've talked about this a number of times over the years. The Old Testament system was, as we've already talked about this morning, it was built around sacrifices. And this was a constant reminder to the Old Testament Jew that he was never able to please God by his own efforts. Now, God gave them the law and told them to live a particular way. But if you read through the sacrifice system that is included in the law, uh, it's a messy, gory business. But it's there to remind us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sins. It's it's there as a reminder that what, what does sin bring? It brings death. And so we see this in in vivid, in technicolor. We see these animals literally being killed, literally shedding their blood. And we're reminded this is the effect of sin. Uh, But that these sacrifices, you know, the sacrifices are there to remind us this is is what sin does. But when these, these sacrifices were properly offered, even though it was gory, even though it was messy, as, as these uh, burnt offerings were offered, it says the smoke of these offerings is as a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God. But if the sacrifices were not offered sincerely, you know, uh, we talked about this uh, probably years ago when we were looking through Leviticus. There, there, were, there was a right way. There, number one, there was a right offering. It couldn't just be any animal. It had to be the right animal, right age, right quality brought at the right time, brought the right way, and it was supposed to represent something on the part of the person who's making the offering. You didn't just say, well, it's that time of year again. It's that, it, it, it's that, uh, that time of the week. Better go, uh, better go make our offering, and then you run down to the holy place and throw a goat over the, or run down to the tabernacle and throw a goat over the curtain and then go about your business. No, you brought it the right way at the right time, with the right heart. If you were casual about how you, eh, well, got to get my sins paid for, uh, then that same offering as it's being burnt, God says this, is a stench in his nostrils. It's not, you know, the, the, the smoke doesn't smell good to God because he just likes the smell of burning animals. It's the heart behind the offering that pleases God. Now, again, let me, let me just say this. In the simplest terms, the Old Testament law said this. It said, live this way, but never forget, you are sinful to the core. You do your best to obey the law, obey the laws, but bring these sacrifices as an acknowledgement that you cannot be righteous on your own. That right standing with me has to come from outside of you. The sacrifices and burnt offerings are how you demonstrate that. You are not buying your righteousness with these gifts 
and offerings and sacrifices. You are simply acknowledging that you can't do this on your own. To obey is better than sacrifice, but you must sacrifice. Now with that emphasis on the necessity of rituals, it's all the more stunning when we read Micah chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 6, a very famous passage, which says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? You see, God doesn't need your oil, your animals, or your money. He desires you. He desires that you are dedicated to him and his goodness. And once again, this time, it, it, this time in this passage of Micah, we come across some fertile ground for a whole other sermon. We could break this down, these three things, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. But in the context of what we're reading in Hebrews, it's this. We are no longer bound to the rituals of blood sacrifice and burnt offerings, but there still is an appropriate sacrifice. What is it? It's praise and worship. It's praise and worship. The fruit of our lips giving thanks to God. And there's a couple things at least a couple things to remember as we compare this sacrifice to the Old Testament sacrifice. And one is this. Praise and worship is God-ordained. This is not something that God throws out there and says, oh, hey, you guys, if you're feeling particularly good sometime, if you wake up in a mood where you just happen to have a, just a, almost a tangible appreciation for how good I've been to you, here's something you can do if you want. Just sing these songs to me. Just praise me. It's an option. I'm throwing it out there in case you feel, you feel really good. No, God is always absolutely worthy of our praise and our worship and our singing and our pray, just our, our, our gratitude. Whether we feel like it or not, the praises, it says, are due him. Right? It's, oh, I can't sing. It was like what uh, Felucia used to say. Uh, Felucia, many of you don't remember, uh, don't remember him. Many of you do. He was here for a few years when he was a uh, grad student at the U of I. Uh, and uh, he would sing at the top of his lungs, and he'd be out there just kind of dancing in the aisles with a big smile on his face. And if you ever sat near to him, he was a terrible singer. He could barely carry a tune, and it didn't care. He said, ah, I'm not a good singer, but I can make a joyful noise make a joyful you can make a joyful noise too so the other thing to remember is this you don't earn your right standing or your forgiveness by praising him any more than the old testament believer earned their right standing or forgiveness with their sacrifice of burnt offerings if you are not allowing listen to this if you're not allowing yourself I'm talking about your values, your behavior, your desires, your lifestyle, your priorities, everything, 
to be transformed by the Word of God, to be transformed by the Spirit of God, then the singing and the praises are empty and a stench in the nostrils of God. Or maybe they make his ears hurt. He's not going to be mocked, and he knows our hearts. And you might even feel on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or any time you gather, oh, this is a good song, I like it, and you start getting into it, and you really feel like you're singing to God. But other than the actual moment of sacrifice, in this case, the sacrifice of praise, we are not allowing his word to affect our lives. Then that's a mockery, isn't it? That's like the Old Testament Hebrew completely disregarding God's law, except with regard to, oop, time to go pay the bill. Tuck a lamb under one arm, turtle doves in the other hand, and march on down to the tabernacle and get it taken care of, and then go back to robbing his neighbor, unjust scales, all the specific things that the Old Testament spells out, then, that's, then suddenly those sacrifices become a mockery. And our sacrifice can too, if we're not careful. And again, this is all in the context of praising him for what he has reserved for us in the eternal city. We can, in the midst of a world that rejects us, because they rejected him, we can rejoice wholeheartedly because we know where our true home is. Now, let me talk about this quickly here because you and I, here and now, have a lot to sort out and concern ourselves with. And this is really a different direction and I can't treat it with anything like uh, uh, the, I can't treat it exhaustively, but I have to mention it. Because what I mean is this, as Christians in America today, historically speaking, we, have an ex- we, are, we are an extraordinarily privileged people. I'm talking about, you look at every country, every nation, every people down throughout history, and you realize what, just how uniquely positioned we as believers in America are. And what I mean by that is we currently, at least at this moment, We have the right to be fully committed to Jesus Christ and at the same time fully participate in the benefits of our society and even fully participate in the government of this society. Don't we? And do you know how rare that is? That historically that's not normal at all depending on the time and or the place, there have always been certain groups of people, whether it's because of their gender, because of their race, because of their religion, or even their parentage. They have been relegated to second or third class citizens and therefore unable to fully participate in their societies. This is what human rights is all about. And this is not ancient history. This is happening right now all over the world. And sometimes this second-class, third-class citizen, it's built right into the religion, like Hinduism. Now, nominally, this kind of injustice and the, the, the human rights violations, nominally, this is what even the protests here in the, in the United States are about. And I say nominally, meaning that's what they say. You and I know there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of misguided action, 
uh, misguided application of ideas, but at the same time, the struggle for equality is a reality. It's worldwide, and it has been for all of history. The question is, and I don't have the answer for you, but the question is, how do we fight? And for how long do we fight? What happens if the day comes, and I'm very tempted to say when the day comes, right here in America, when they tell us that we are second-class citizens, as long as we maintain that our first loyalty is to Christ and the Word, that our primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ and the Word of God before our allegiance to the laws of this land. There's no question that's where we're supposed to be. And right now we can get away with it. What happens if they someday they tell us, look, you're an American first. You can be a Christian as long as you're an American first. And meanwhile, we see what's happening to the laws of America, right? We know that as Christians, we can't fully support some of these things. So how hard do we fight? Because this is something that's worth preserving, isn't it? This moment in time, rare as it is, had a, I had a talk with, I, I don't know if I shared this with you or not, I had, had a, a long walk and a talk with a good friend of mine who is a, who is a historian. And uh, he sees trouble on the horizon too. He says, you know, how, how, how rare is this, this moment we're living in? He says, if, if, uh, if America... He says, do I think this is the greatest country that has ever existed? Yeah, I do. And I also think that if, that if America goes down, if it goes away, uh, it, would be, it could easily be another thousand years before we ever saw anything like it again on the face of the earth. That's just from a historical perspective. So it's certainly worth preserving. But again, how do we fight? How long do we fight? Because after all, the guidance we see here in Hebrews indicates to me that ultimately there comes a time when we simply bear that reproach. Where? Outside the city. What's that mean? It, it's simply, what's, what am I talking about? What city? I'm talking about society, that we are going to be outsiders. Right now we're insiders. We can be, and we should be, and we should be doing everything we can from the inside. But if we wind up being outsiders, it doesn't mean we failed. Jesus suffered outside the city. And we can bear his reproach outside, even on the margins of society, and we can still be effective there. You know that, right? We don't need to be in the driver's seat or in positions of power to fulfill the Great Commission. We don't need to be in the driver's seat to live the gospel or preach the gospel. It's nice when we are. And when we have these privileges and we have these opportunities, by all means, let's take advantage of them and exploit them while we can. Because they won't always be here for us. Sometimes it's going to be more blatant. Sometimes it's going to be more obvious. But we're always going to be outsiders. Uh, just remember that even as outsiders, we still have authority over demons. We still have authority over sickness and disease. We still have authority over all the attacks of the enemy. What we don't have authority over is the will of other people. We walk in the victory that Christ won for us. 
We are protected by God. We are provided for by God. We are healed by God. But if I'm reading the Bible right, all will not be made right until Jesus returns bodily to this world. That's the day we're waiting on. And he'll recreate the heavens and the earth, and we will inherit an eternal city. There's more. I'll circle around back to it in a minute. But just to wrap this letter up, uh, let's read through the end of it, beginning in verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have good conscience and all things in all things desiring to live honorably, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Now, verse 17 there, it's always dicey when a pastor preaches this or verses like this because it's clearly speaking of spiritual authority in this case, not civil authority. And the best I can do to explain this is to give you an example. You know, we have elders here that... uh, assist. They, they serve you, they serve the church, and they assist in the oversight of this local church. And I love it when I get an email or a message from one of them or several of them that goes something like this. Uh, Pastor Scott, have you considered maybe doing this? Uh, maybe here's something we could do different. Or are we neglect? Maybe it would be better if we did such and such a thing. And then they follow it up. Whatever the suggestion is, Whatever the concern is, it's followed up with something like, you're the pastor, and we love you, and we're praying for you, and whatever you decide, we are supporting you. Because what they're doing is trusting me to hear from God, and they are committed to doing what they can do to make me able to do my job with joy and not grief. I don't know if it has ever dawned on you, but there is a strong statistical likelihood that I will someday do or say something wrong. It's true. And there is a certainty that right or wrong, I will do do or say something that not everybody agrees with. That has never been more true than in the last six months. So, I have never appreciated more those who can say, this is my church. There are decisions being made from time to time that I don't want the responsibility of making. And I may not agree with every single detail and decision, but I am committed to my church, and that means I'm supporting my pastor too. Now, obviously, if I stand up here and start saying things like, you know, Jesus, as I think about it, the more I read the scriptures, the more I I believe that Jesus is just one of many ways to God. 
And I really don't believe when it talks about the resurrection, I don't think it's talking about bodily resurrection. Then it's time for me to go. And if I don't go, it's time for you to go. That's heresy. All right? Meanwhile, we've got a bunch of daily and weekly and monthly decisions to make. You know what I'm talking about in the middle of all this stuff. And it makes me sad. Never mind. I'm not going there. But boy, I'm tempted to go there. It makes me sad and it makes me mad. But I'll just say this. I want to say you, I appreciate you for standing with each other and with me and praying for each other and praying for me. And as we read in these closing verses, it's Jesus who is going to make us complete in every good work and to do his will. I'm going to circle around back quickly to verse 10 and we will prepare to receive from the Lord's table. Praise and worship team, you can come on up here. It says this, that we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. This is not, by the way, a direct reference to communion, but I do see shades of it here. Jesus, right before he was going to be the ultimate atoning sacrifice, who was to be taken outside the city in reproach, told his disciples to do what the Old Testament priests could not do, which was what? Consume the body of the sacrifice. You see, the death and resurrection of Christ does not just cover our sins. It cleanses us, right? What else does it do, though? It sustains us and nourishes us. What this verse specifically is saying, when it says we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, what it's saying here is that the one, again, going back to these Hebrews who were wanting to return to Judaism, he says if you're going to continue to insist on seeking your salvation through the law, through the rituals of sacrifice, then you cannot claim the benefits of the new covenant. All the benefits of the new covenant come only through the shed blood, the death, and the resurrection and finished work of Jesus Christ. What you are doing is you are trading your secure place in this perishing world for a secure place in eternity. You are trading, did you hear that? You are trading your security your secure place in this world which is being shaken, which is perishing. And what you're getting in exchange is a secure place in an eternal, unshakable city. You're trading your position as an insider here. You're willing to become an outsider here, to become an insider there. It was the missionary Jim Elliott who famously said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So before we get directly into the communion meditation, let me ask you this. Is that an exchange that you're prepared to make today? Why don't you stand up for just a second? Not just a second, maybe a minute or two. 
I shared with the Rangers the other night a message, uh, Royal Rangers. Uh, and toward the end of it, I made this statement. I was actually pointing out how what John was saying in, uh, I think, chapter 12 or 13 about the arm of the Lord. We talked about the universe being the work of God's fingers. But then how Isaiah said, to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it talks about the, the saving work of Jesus. And that's represented by the arm of the Lord. And how much stronger the arm is than the fingers. And then John quotes that verse in Isaiah talking about the miracles that Jesus did. Meaning, he clearly demonstrated who he was by his miracles. He revealed the arm of the Lord in his ministry. And it says that there were those leaders in their society some Pharisees who believed in him but would not confess him. That is sobering. But I know there are people like that. Maybe not right here in this room. I believe there are. But I know there are people in the world who, if you press them on it, and if you could see in their heart of hearts, they believe but they have not confessed Jesus as Lord. Why? Because they're not willing to pay that price. It's going to cost them something. It's going to, at some level, make them an outsider. And it says right there in John, it's because they loved the praise of men. They feared what the ruling authorities would think about them if they confessed Jesus Christ. It was, they would rather maintain, hear that, their secure position in a kingdom that's being shaken. It's a tough decision. I mean, it's a, it's a logical decision when you consider everything, but it's a big decision. It is going to cost you, but it's not, a, it's not going to cost you anything near what it's going to gain you. What it's going to cost you is that which you are going to lose anyway. When you trade the now, the temporary now for the eternal then, Will you confess Christ? Well, can I believe in, in believing enough? Not according to Romans. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Does anybody in here need to confess Jesus as their Lord for the first time today? Anybody? We did have, but by the way, so they, they did have a, uh, an individual make that decision at the Royal Rangers uh, camp out the other night. That was a great, great testimony. Praise the Lord. Anybody want to make that decision today? Well, you guys, why can't you put it? Can everybody close their eyes? Can everybody bow their head? I'm not asking you to do that. No. I want you to confess him before one another. Anybody? Last, last, last opportunity. Anybody? I need to become a Christian today, Pastor Scott. I want to do it right now. Anybody? Okay. Okay. You can be seated. Praise the Lord. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.